This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-host, James Hammer. What's up, dude? Nothing much. What's going on? I am doing pretty good. I just got back from us seeing Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse in the theater, and uh, you did too as well, right? Yeah, I just got back from it just about an hour before. Uh, liked it a lot. Like, aside from maybe the most extreme like extreme opinions out there calling it like the greatest movie of like this decade or whatever. Most of the hype is actually pretty well earned. It's, it's really, really great. I know this is going to come out a good two, three weeks after the movie has been out. If you haven't by some miracle seen it yet, you should. It's, it's really, really good. Yeah. All right. So the last series we finished was the evil dead trilogy plus one. And then we did a brief underrated for a murder on the Orient express. And now for our next series, we are going to talk about Tom Cruise's signature uh, franchise mission impossible. And boy, what a franchise this is. Yeah. I'm really excited. Um, to me, I think I may have mentioned it on an episode prior but this is kind of one of the series my mind goes to when we were talking about like the concept of this podcast, just going through franchises and and talking about their production and just the overall opinion and and how it's how it's changed with the times. And this there's a there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to talk about because all of these entries, you know, they're often very different from each other, and there's a lot of interesting behind the scenes stuff. And the production itself is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah. So. For this first episode, we are obviously doing the first movie, which is Mission Impossible from 1996. But before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and then like us on Facebook. So I asked on Twitter earlier today uh, what people thought of this movie, and we got a couple of... We got a bit of interaction from Facebook. Shane said, I loved it. I wish De Palma would have come back to make more. His style fit the material like a glove. I definitely agree it fit, although I I gotta say I do love the way it has um you know gone to a new director each time. Although I I can't say I would feel too bad if De Palma came back. Yeah, same. Uh his his style of filmmaking really lent itself, especially to this particular story with just uh so much paranoia and stuff like that. I think it worked out really well. Yeah. And uh, MJ Smith from the Real Perspective podcast said, haven't seen it since it was on VHS, but I loved it as a kid. And my main memory of it as a kid was just being very, very confused. So uh, James, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this film came to the big screen? Sure. Uh, so as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of, it's it's based off of a popular TV series uh, that ran for seven seasons from 1966 to 1973. Um, I don't think either of us are very familiar with the the series itself. Not at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I've never seen an entire episode. I wa- I watched the uh, musical intro uh, on YouTube yesterday. Nice. <laughs> uh, well, then you probably know more about it than either of us. Um, however, it is interesting to note um, the the first season was uh, led by Dan Briggs, who is played by Stephen Hill. However, from the second season and for the rest of the series. Um, the lead character was Jim Phelps, uh, played by Peter Graves, uh, which is relevant considering when we get to the reaction to this particular film. 
Um, but yeah, it's really popular. And the the uh, the gist of the show could probably be gathered just from the the first film. It was it was chronicling all of the different adventures of IMF or the Impossible Missions Force and best name ever. Exactly, uh, kind of similar to just something along the lines of like the A Team at the time. But then when it came so when it came to actually getting a, a film made, attempts to create a feature length film date actually back to the early eighties. Uh, Paramount, who owned the rights, they were toying around with the idea of a resurrection series or a possible film. Um, however, at the time, their funds were a bit too short for a film, so the the idea of uh, resurrecting the series in any capacity was kind of tabled for a bit. I wonder if it had been made then, would it have been like at all distinguishable from, say, what the Bond series was at that point? Yeah, because at that time, you know, in the eighties, not that Bond wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't popular even in the nineties. However. I think maybe even in the 90s, it, it could have been when it was made. I think what kept it from being that could have been uh, attaching De Palma. Uh, and Cruz. And Cruz, yeah. Uh, although, honestly, I could, you know, maybe he would in, in improve upon the quality of, of a Bond film in the 90s. Uh, but I could kind of see him doing a, a more Bond-esque. I mean, a lot of, minus like the the woman of the movie kind of theme that all the Bond movies have, you can see a lot of similarities between like modern day Mission Impossible and modern day Bond. Although this series has kind of done the uh, the, the hunt girl. Per oh yeah, that's true. Kind of thing. But then, uh, so later during uh, 1988, there was a writer's strike. And so Paramount spent their time pouring through old unused scripts uh, that could be easily updated and, uh, you know, and, and have new shows or resurrect different shows. Uh, and they came across Mission Impossible as an option. There was just a lot of unproduced scripts lying around. And so this led to a reboot series that lasted only from 1988 to 1989. And it was very poorly received. I wasn't even aware of this until um, recording or until researching for this episode. Um I know very little about that show. And because of the the failure of that show, again, it was kind of put on hiatus. Um, And Tom Cruise is actually spending the 80s pretty much just making a name for himself as a dramatic actor. Um, And moving into the early 90s, Cruise was wanting more creative input in his films. Uh, So he actually started a production company in 1993 called Cruise Wagner Productions um, with Paula Wagner. Uh, and he, they ended up signing an exclusive contract with Paramount Pictures. Uh, so Cruz, having grown up as a fan of the original TV series and kind of seeing this as a chance to set himself apart as not just a dramatic actor, uh, he decided it was going to be the first film they'd produce with their new production company. So Cruz, along with his producing partner uh, and fellow filmmaker Sidney Pollock, uh, they said about creating a story for the first film in the series, uh, and this is actually months prior to even a, a director or a writer coming on board. Yeah, so after working for a while with Sidney Pollock, uh, Brian De Palma was hired, and then De Palma brought on screenwriters Steve Zalian, David Kep, and then Robert Town, who all alternately worked on the script, trying to craft a story around a action sequence that had already been developed by uh, De Palma and Cruz, which seems to be pretty much the story for most of these scripts. Yeah, from what I what I read, it seemed to be a rather long and torturous process just trying to create a story. You know, they had, you know, so many action scenes that they knew they wanted to have. So they, they were just basically stringing together a plot to make it all work, and more or less succeeded. So when it came to to casting uh, the film, Cruz was obviously brought on board as as the lead. Um, part of that was actually part of the reason, like I said, that 
that he, he sought out this particular series. So for the role of Claire Phelps, initially Juliette Benoche, I think is how you pronounce her name. Uh, she had actually just come off of an Oscar win that year for The English Patient. She was approached, but she ended up turning the role down, and, and then it eventually went to Emanuela uh, Bayard. Um, for the rest of the film, there's not really a whole lot known about the casting process. We know that there were several people um, who auditioned for various roles, but there's not there's a surprisingly small amount of um, of chronicling of, of that process. Uh, John Voigt was cast as Jim Phelps, who I believe is the only returning character from the original series. Uh, Ving Rhames was cast as Luther Stickle, Vanessa Redgrave as Max, Henry Zerny as Eugene Kittred, uh, Jean Renault as Franz Krieger, Kristen Scott Thomas as Sarah Davies, Emilio Estevez as Jack Harmon. If I'm not mistaken, he wasn't even actually credited. He was just kind of yeah. That's weird. He's one of the one of the few uh, uncredited roles, and it's weird because all of them actually have that. Because um, I don't believe. Anthony Hopkins is actually credited in at least one of one of the like, like the main big stars who who's like the the chief of IMF for that one off movie wasn't credited. I believe it was him. I guess Estevez would have been a big star at that at that time. Yeah, definitely, definitely more so than Ingeborga Dakunaite. I won't even pretend that that's how you <laughs> pronounce it. Uh, it was cast as Hannah Williams. Carol Debris was uh, cast as Matthias. Marcel Lures as Alexander Golitsyn, Rolf Saxon as uh, William Dunlow, and Dale Dye as Frank Barnes. Yeah, Dale Dye kind of surprised me. He's probably best known as he he acts in a lot of military movies, and he runs a training camp for uh, actors to get together as like to, and then train to be soldiers. It's kind of funny you just see him in this tiny little role here. Yeah, it was really funny. Just as a, a quick aside, uh, he's he's also a star in a, a television series that I watched for a while called Falling Skies. Both he and the actor who portrays uh, Kittredge, Henry Zerny. Um, and so my sister and I were watching the film and the two shared a scene. And I was like, oh, that's so-and-so from Falling Skies. And she's like, no, I mean, you're right. He's in Falling Skies, but he plays that. And it turns out we were looking at the wrong actor. So... Right as we're binging this show, we see two people from the same movie, and we're like, no, he's not him, he's this guy. So basically, right from the start of this series, uh, Cruz wanted the uh, the movie to be driven by its set pieces with the kind of, the, as I said, the story coming in to fill the gaps. And you know, while, while the narrative of Cruz as this just mad stuntman willing to risk his life just to get the shot, um, that doesn't, I don't feel like that actually really took hold until around Ghost Protocol, but you know, back at the beginning, right here, watching the watching the old special features from the '90s, the entire crew is talking about just how crazy Tom Cruise is and how dangerous the stunts he's doing. So he he's been at this the whole time. Yeah, apparently the the um the aqua or not the aquarium, but the the fish tank scene was apparently particularly dangerous. There was a uh, evidently a risk of drowning shooting that scene that he. And then also, you know, during the uh, climactic train sequence, even though it was shot against a blue screen, Cruz insisted on getting a wind machine that could uh, go up to 140 miles an hour so it could uh, actually distort his face with the force. Um, and that actually does go a long way into selling that effect. Yeah, I think so much of the thrill of that sequence is, you know, until we're like exploding helicopters and jumping onto the train. Like, I love that. <laughs> well... <laughs> I have thoughts on that. However, but like with the the top of the train, all of that, it's, I think the scene works so well because of the sense of speed that is so clearly conveyed. You know, even, 
you know, when he lets go and he kind of slides further down and he barely grabs on and, and John Voigt kind of like swivels around directions and stuff, you feel like you're moving at that speed. Yeah, and unlike a lot of 90s films, the CGI feels very subtle. You know, you think about 90s CGI, like The Mummy Returns with the Scorpion King, like really just garish, horrible looking stuff that just kind of fills up the screen. And here it, it feels very subdued. And honestly, I know I know it's blue screen, but I don't think that at all while watching this sequence. Yeah, it is really weird. Even from the opening transition where we're following uh, from like this kind of helicopter angle, the, the train as it speeds down and we it's a really cool shot. We slowly pan in closer and closer until like the the one of the windows of the train is taking up like the entire frame and and it I mean it just it feels really realistic um and that yeah it continues on even to like the the action sequence that's taking place on top it for the most part they do a really good job of making you feel like you're at that particular location there were uh, reports of like a lot of conflict between Cruz and De Palma while filming. Uh, one popular account is that while they were shooting a scene, Cruz kept demanding more takes after uh, De Palma was satisfied. And supposedly they nearly came to blows before uh, uh, Cruz's uh, co-producer, Paula Wagner, stepped in um, and said that the conflict is likely why De Palma opted out of the, uh, accompanying them on the press tour. And I wonder if this is why they started the uh, tradition of directors not coming back. <laughs> And so during editing, a subplot that was that was centered around a love triangle between Hunt, Phelps, and Claire was mostly cut out of the film. Uh, although uh, like weird pieces still remain, and we'll get into how that exactly affects the film. But uh, I hate the idea of the subplot, but I am kind of interested to see how it would have worked. Yeah, so you, I feel like you can really feel um, some of the effects of it, though. Obviously, with with the end and him intentionally using her to. Uh, to cause Ethan to, to fall for her and all that. So that's, that's set up. And then you get that one line where he kind of, you know, he has to like, you know, lay off my wife's coffee, blah, blah, blah. Like you I could see how those bits would have fed into this plot. Um, I'm not sure if it would have done the character any favors, but yeah. Alan Silvestri was actually hired to score the film and had recorded a good chunk of the music before he was fired and then replaced by Danny Elfman. Uh, supposedly, Silvestri reused some of the music he composed for this film for the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Eraser. Although there were, it was weird, there were a couple moments in this score when I was listening to Danny Elfman's score where I sensed a little bit of like Back to the Future, which could be purely coincidental, but it's just kind of funny knowing that uh, he, he had been on this. And then finally, the uh, movie was released on May 22nd of 1996. And uh, James, do you remember your first viewing? And uh, what has your relationship with this film been like over the years? Yeah, so I think I've only, I've seen the film a total of three times. Um, I don't remember the circumstance of me watching it the first time. I think it was just, it was either, I, I think the first three were on Netflix for a bit. And so I decided to watch them. Although the third was taken off by the time I got to it. So how long ago would this have been? This would have probably been maybe two or three years ago. And I saw this one and I didn't really have a great first viewing. Um, I mean, the setting was fine. It's just I was thrown by by some of the, the choices made in the film. And... And whenever you say, you know, your your earliest memory is just being confused as a kid, that's kind of my memory. Just as a 20-year-old, I guess, I would be watching this. Not really aware, like, aware of the way, like, the way I was supposed to take a lot of these twists. However, I watched it again, and it completely clicked for me the, the second time. And this was leading up to Fallout. We took a few months before Fallout came out. And, 
I rewatched it then and I just I enjoyed it much more that time and you know the the reveal of Phelps as a traitor early on um made it, it just made sense in a way that it didn't the first time um and so I I think I bumped it up an entire star uh just because the 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 tone and the the atmosphere and this this kind of the sense of paranoia and all of the whole vibe of the movie really struck me a lot more the second time and and because so much of the plot was working for me much more the second time I was then able to really enjoy and appreciate the set pieces themselves more um so rewatching it again I just kind of continued in that thought of 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 really really enjoying the movie quite a bit yeah so similar as, as I said earlier my main kind of takeaway from this movie for years was just how confusing it was. I saw it a couple times as a kid. Uh, and I don't know, like, I know this is a very, that's a very uh, kind of widespread uh, criticism of this movie. It's just how convoluted the plot is. Although I, when I finally rewatched it earlier this year, it isn't, it really, like, it really isn't that convoluted. I'll get, we'll get into that later. I think it's more to do with how certain information is revealed. But actually, you know, I found it a fairly straightforward, just a really solid thriller. And I had just, you know, months before watched like five or six previous, or, you know, previous and later De Palma films. So it was much more kind of clued into his style. And I really loved that, you know, that sense of paranoia and how much of a, uh, a true spy thriller this movie was. And then just the set pieces, everything just kind of coalesced uh, when I watched when I watched it earlier this year, kind of coming up to leading up to uh, Fallout. So I came into this viewing, you know, really appreciating what it was, having not really cared for much for most of my life. And so moving to the main review, uh, I feel like this movie, as with pretty much every Mission Impossible film, kind of comes down to the director. And here you have uh, Brian De Palma, who was kind of famous for his, you know, paranoia thrillers, uh, very Hitchcockian vibe. And he brings all of that to here, even though it's not like some of, some of his movies are like really garish and in, in your face with how much he just throws his weirdness and just, he just, he often just amps his style up to 11 and, and it doesn't feel like that here. It feels like he's, you know, he's bringing all his signature styles like Dutch angles and extreme close-ups or the split diopters. But even though all of that is present, it never feels like it overpowers the narrative. It all just feels like it's kind of coming together to give you, you know, these very smooth, technically proficient sequences and i was really i think it's really cool that he was able to you know control his style and then make it and then use it in a very effective way in this movie yeah and and like you said it, it doesn't overpower the narrative and i think you know like 95 percent of the time it's actually working com- like in tandem with the narrative although the funny thing with these movies are is it's <laughs> you i never really know where the narrative is and we're just it's just the director kind of doing whatever he wants and then we'll put a narrative around it yeah and the the scene that that i think of you know i I just think about him bringing his sensibilities is is the great scene where kittredge brings him to that restaurant and he's just kind of briefing him and uh, as as the scene goes on we start getting these dutch angles and i'm glad that there's movies like this that exist to where like i actually get to see good examples of dutch angles and and it avoids thor was great Thor was 80% of Thor is great. And then every now and then I'm like, man, that was so unnecessary. But here, not only does it not feel cheesy, but it absolutely accomplishes the effect it was looking to achieve. Like, 
as from like would pretty much feel like the camera's just sitting on the table like directly in front of them looking up at their faces at this weird tilted angle and then we're getting these super close-ups of their faces and their eyes and the sweat we're seeing like just the wrinkles in in Ethan's face as he's coming to a realization of what's going on and both the actors are really hamming it up and it just works perfectly yeah and it 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 avoids being just like eye-rollingly cheesy and you know if you accept the movie for like what it's being it's incredibly effective to you know by the time we see him pull the gum out of his pocket there's just there's this sense of like paranoia and and almost this kind of um I mean, the the tone of this movie being a spy thriller is really, really established really well in that first scene um, to the point to like by the time he he's able to escape, we're fully aware of like what kind of movie this is now. Yeah, and that's something that De Palma has does in a lot of his movies, and with very much like Hitchcock is like trying to create that this is kind of very paranoid setting for the actors, the characters, where they just they don't know what's true or what's what's real or who to trust, and that's really what this movie is. And also, kind of also De Palma is like has a really weird fascination with voyeurism, and I noticed that a couple times here, like with just how much of the story is shot through like. Like people watching other people on camera, like we have the glass, the glasses. Um, there's a lot of scenes where it, it's you're kind of watching, watching the scene playing out through another screen. You, you can see he's kind of bringing his up, some of his uh, fascination with that. Um, but yeah, overall, it just it just it just feels like a spy movie. It's very there's a lot like a lot of mist, like when you're in Prague and. And it it doesn't it doesn't feel like a '90s movie. Like it doesn't have that crazy excess. Even though the the the, the stunts are very excessive, they never feel like they ne- they never they're always shot in such a matter of fact way that they never feel like they're kind of playing into the bombast of the '80s and '90s. Honestly, watching this movie, the style feels like probably '70s is what the most what it feels like most. Um, you know, just you know, despite. You know, Palma bringing all his crazy angles. It's still like a lot of the scenes play out in these, you know, fairly simple wide takes, but they're all very effective. Like, it, it, not 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 at all in a boring way, but I think in, in a way that the, the way he uses Dutch angles, and also also he there's a, a type of angle he uses where it's like placing a camera kind of like way above them from the side. It makes again going back into his uh, fascination with the voyeurism. It, it feels like you're kind of watching this person like inside of a dollhouse or something. Uh, that that that's kind of done in a lot of scenes. So yeah, I think he brings a very old-fashioned style to this movie in a way that makes it feel very timeless. <laughs> in a way that the next film in the series does not at all. This movie feels like the filmmaking is just so sturdy and classical that it doesn't feel like a product of the '90s. Yeah, and then just talking about like the the tone of of the the film itself that he's able to create. I think one of the reasons that this is going to end up ranking as high as it does by the time we finish is because this is the only because of the emphasis on on the paranoia and on the on it being a thriller. It's one of the few movie or it's it may be the only one in the series that feels like just a, a spy thriller. All all of the others, you know, I mean, it's kind of known as maybe King of the Action franchise at this point, which is a completely earned title. But but here, if you notice, Ethan never fires a gun once this entire film, which is kind of crazy considering its reputation now. Although guns have never really been his thing over the series. It happens every now and then. Like, he uses them quite a bit in three, but... Oh, yeah. 
I forgot, I'm forgetting John Woo. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, next movie, it's it's a no holds barred with the with the guns. Um, but yeah, here you know it's we definitely have these in, these really you know elaborate set pieces. However, for the most part, aside from the very end, they're really not driven by just direct action. Um, and I mean the the standout one being the the Langley infiltration. It's it's this incredible sequence, but it's all, it's all about stealth. It's all about not being seen and not being explosive, and and so by the end of it, you feel like you walked away just from a, a really competent thriller, as opposed to just you know, like you said, a, a, just another cheesy '90s action movie. Yeah, I would I would even hesitate to call it an action movie. Like the final sequence would probably be the closest thing to an action sequence but even then it feels much more like a hitchcock suspense climax like we're you know hanging on the like from a, a strangers on a train with the uh ferris wheel or um north by northwest on the uh what's the freaking mountain with faces on it Rushmore. Oh, no. it's much more about the suspense of it all where they're, like they're barely they're barely moving like creeping along they're just trying not to be blown off the train, and it, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like an action scene. The most action, like bombastic action piece of it, as you said, is you know <laughs> jumping and being hurled by an explosion. So yeah, I, I would definitely put this much more of a, of a thriller than a action movie, and and I like that. And but that said, we get some really great uh, sequences in this film. Um, and just to go go through a couple of them, I I, I love the first this the first sequence where they're going on the mole hunt. And that, that's just a beautifully crafted scene, um, you know, starting with them tooling up in their base and then kind of moving through the big party. And we he really sets the stage. We we know how all the space works. You have the elevator and, you know, she's watching the guy from up here with the glow stuff in his hair and kind of just you moving back and forth with, with the elevator and, you know, going underneath. It's It's all... Like this is very clear and concise storytelling, and I I also love that he always lets us know exactly where we are in the mission and what what we're trying to accomplish, and that that's kind of a thing that the the rest of the series has you know done a great job of continuing. But I think you know he set that up really well with just how these heists work, and even though later on it moves much toward action and stunts, you can just see that kind of lifeblood being formed here, and I'm sure a lot of that was Cruz as well. But I think um. De Palma has such a great eye for crafting these elaborate suspense sequences that just kind of build and build and build until obviously where everyone starts dying in this one. It really does feel like a Hitchcock sequence. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of this, I guess, thir- or this the first act of this film. Um, one of the things that I, I'm able to appreciate more so now, although it did really take me back the first time, is... This very the movie very much sets itself up as if like this is the team that we need to get used to you know like there's the you know the the brief bit of joking between them all you know about the the coffee and this and that and 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 seeing watching the first interrogation scene from Emilio Estevez's character's point of view and you know he's talking with Hannah there and um and everybody you know it it the movie presents itself as you know this is our hacker. This is our, you know, our girl who gets us in for, like, this is all, these are all of these characters' very defined roles. And they all um, have good chemistry together. Yeah, it feels like they've been operating for a while. Like, there's there's different little touches that I think go a long way, just like as they're, 
you know, setting up the equipment and giving each other the devices. You know, he's giving her a glass and she's like, oh, you have very lovely eyes. Then he, he puts a glass like just... Hasta lasagna, don't get any on you. <laughs> exactly. Like they, there's little bitty things that they bring to these characters that, like I said, the first time I'm sitting there fully convinced like, oh, I, I you know, I know that Mission Impossible is usually about this kind of like these team action set pieces. And so I came to it not realizing that that wasn't the case with the first one. And so once people start dying, I, I remember... The, the moment where I was like, oh, this is this is getting real, is when we, we see Emilio Estevez's character's death. That's one of those gr- like great all-time movie deaths. It was you know forever burned in my brain as a child. Because <laughs> yeah. you actually do see the spike go into that rubber face. Uh, yeah, and, you know, it's 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 not like one hundred percent realistic, but it's it holds up surprisingly well today for me at least. And and it sounds so sadistic, I guess, but but I think by actually showing that, um, and by you know by showing people look at their hands with the blood, like when he, he finds uh, the and seeing Hannah get blown up, it creates this sense of stakes and consequence. Like this is this is real and heavy, and and so when we get to the you know being briefed by Kittredge, the paranoia feels all the more real because we know in this movie they're not afraid to kill people and show it and and so that whole first sequence is just so well done and every death is like really shocking and it's like it's just like every one of those is kind of iconic you know we have jack and his face stabbed or where Cruz runs along the bridge and we see the explosion in the distance and he, and he does one of his awesome tom Cruise reactions to it or when phelps gets shot and you, you look down at his He's looking at his wrist. You see his bloody hands. Like each one is just kind of burned into your brain and really leaves an impact. Yeah, and it also, you know, it, it kind of precedes the scene with Kittredge of like setting up this as like this is going to be a, a mystery. Uh, and and the scene of him running down the like the street and and all of the mist. It just creates this almost unnerving and an eerie atmosphere where you know you feel like danger really is around every corner and it is because you know he turns corners and he finds his his partners being stabbed and you know you notice the tails and everything so it's a really really solid way to start a movie mm-hmm. and we might as well talk about Cruz now i love how he plays that sense of terror and paranoia you know when he gets on the phone he's like frantically wiping the blood off his hands and you know they're dead they're all dead and you just he's you can see, I love just how he plays breaking down it's so ridiculous and over the top but it just it just works and then the, I, I just love that face of you know Kittredge you've never seen me very upset <laughs> and then <laughs> what what I find really fascinating you know having spent most of my fandom of Mission Impossible watching you know three through five. Going back to this, what really surprises me about Ethan Hunt is how just how much of a normal guy he is. Like, I, you get the picture from this movie that there's nothing terribly special about him. You know, he's obviously skilled, but you know, he doesn't feel like the strongest. You know, the, the best fighter. You know, the fastest. Well, he is the fastest runner, but <laughs> you know, he he doesn't feel like the most skilled person. Like he, you know, he gets his butt handed to him several times, and he, he's often one step behind where he needs to be. I get, the, I get the feeling that just like he's just a normal guy, but what makes Ethan Hunt Ethan Hunt is that you know no matter how impossible the mission gets, he's just gonna keep going, and you know how no matter how how much danger to life and limb or even other people sometimes, like no matter how how dangerous it gets, he's the one who's just gonna climb on the train and jump on a helicopter to just get the mission done, and that's like the only thing that sets him apart from everyone else, 
And I really like just how normal of a guy he is for the rest of the time. Yeah, Cruz just has a really great way of, of playing action heroes like like every like the everyman. Uh, we've talked. Uh, uh, I think we've we've done episodes just with a layer of psychopath or sociopath over it. Yeah, and with obscene amounts of charm and charisma. Uh, but you know, we, we talked about uh, Oblivion and uh, War of the Worlds in the past, and he, he very much feels like just kind of. I mean, he's he's a very believable dad in in War of the Worlds, just like this kind of blue collar worker. Uh, and here, he he almost feels like a more subdued version of a character like MacGyver or something, where like his greatest strength is his ability to just be be able to think on his feet. Because, like you said, he may not he's probably not going to win every fight with everybody. He's not the biggest guy, but he's constantly able to adapt to the situations in a way that most people might not. Yeah, I mean, 60-year-old John Voight beats him up somehow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is funny, like, actually, he's only 58, which is, John Voight in this movie is only two years older than Tom Cruise is now. Think about that. <laughs> That's weird. But also, like, there's, he gets to be really funny and charming. Like, oh, the, the sequence was where he's trying to charm Max, and he has this just giant dopey grin on his face. His head's kind of just, like, bobbling around. It's so ridiculous. But you can see he he, he knows he has Max's attention, and he's just hamming it up to try and just try and get her cur- more and more curious. And he's playing off Vanessa Redgrave, who is just so delightful. I love the way she says, you know, you're a paradox and all that. And he's just meeting that with another huge smile. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite scenes of the movie is just him tied up. But he just he's, he's giving off this vibe like he's just having the time of his life. And he's he's presenting himself uh, like despite the fact that he's tied up and everyone else has guns as as if he's the one kind of in charge of the situation. You're like, OK, I mean, you can do it if you want, whatever. And he's smiling through it all. Um, and, you know, it's not an act because he's, you know, he's telling the truth, obviously, about that. Um, and because of that, he's kind of able to relax himself into this, into this persona of this guy who's who's got it all figured out, and he's he's completely in charge of of where things are headed. Yeah. Uh, go, moving on to some of the rest of the cast, um, you have uh, John Voight, uh, who I don't know. It's just mirrors that he feel like he's really just kind of phoning it in for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's hard for me to realize if like whether it's phoning in or if it's just like some sort of weird acting decision he went for. Uh, part of me wants to actually go and see what Phelps was like in the original series, uh, though with the '80s or the '70s and '60s being so, you know, in your face and exaggerated. Sometimes <laughs> I can't believe he's that subdued in the show. Yeah, often in this movie, it almost feels like he's just doing some simple line reading. I, th- I think there are a couple of moments where he is really good. Um, the the briefing, for some reason, uh, really sticks out to me is just the way he kind of like, there seems to be like mild annoyance in his voice as he's like, hey, lay off my wife's coffee. Like like he's kind of joking, but there's something actually personal there. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. sure that would have meant more had the love triangle be, uh, been kept. But But yeah, especially later on, it it does feel like he's just there to read his lines, especially in the big reveal as he approaches from the dark and he's pointing the gun and he's, I don't know, it's he kills his wife without even blinking. Yeah, it's kind of it's 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 just a really weird. For another, one, it's kind of funny, but for the, for like twenty years, I thought Emmanuel Beert was uh, Vera Farmiga. Like I, I was at that age where you know all actors and actresses look alike, 
And for some reason, I just connected her. Like, they do look a little similar. I just connected her with that. And I never looked it up for, till like, la- to earlier this year. And just for some reason, all this time, I thought that it was a Vera Farmiga here in um, Mission Impossible. But uh, that's it. I, th- I think she's decent. Um, I don't know. Her accent throws some of the line readings off a little bit. I mean, she, the, the character is given very little to do. She mainly is kind of there to look innocent and sweet and for us to sympathize with her until she tries to kill our main character, but <laughs> or betray our main character. Yeah, like, I think she's she's decent enough, but she doesn't get a lot to do. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of my problems with the movie actually kind of revolve around her. Um, I do think that there are some lines that just come off as really stilted, and I don't know how much of that is just you know reading through a through a thick accent, but it, and a lot of it probably also is just she's she's sharing so many scenes with Tom Cruise, who's you know exaggerated so often and in the best kind of ways. But it, it feels often like she's just reading these lines in a very like monotone kind of way, and um maybe it's like these kind of attempts to to appear somber and and she has a couple of moments that i think are good like you know when she's just repeating like 4 a.m four o'clock you know like she seems completely dazed and she really sells the scene but there are other times where we're just kind of talking through the mission or through the dramatic points at the end where like void it kind of just it feels although she definitely feels like she's trying more it's just even still there's not really a whole lot of emotion that ever comes through the character well, that that's a symptom that throughout the entire film there is like there's very little emotion in this movie. It's very much a technical exercise, and whatever emotion the writers trying to put in here was was cut out on purpose. To another cast member that I do like a lot, we have a Henry Zerny as Kittredge, and he's only got like f- four or five scenes in the movie, and most of them are like really short. But I I love this guy here, and he's just so just sleazy like you get the feeling when he when he when he's with hunt at the restaurant that he does not care one bit that they lost just lost like five agents he's just like absolutely gleeful that he caught his mole i love just the way he's like when when cruz like oh this, this whole operation was a mole hunt and he just goes like yeah <laughs> and he's got that smirk on his face you know why don't we get out you know Get out of here quietly and hop on a plane. I can understand if you're very upset. And he's, he's just like, it, the loss doesn't register with him. He's just, he just wants to be here to gloat to this man that he outsmarted. Um, and every sequence he's in, he's just really chewing the scenery. You know, I want him many a radar tower in Alaska by the end of the day. Just mail him his clothes. <laughs> that is such a great line. And I love that it's one of the, that's one of the best, I think the best split diopter shots in the movie where we just see, Poor Dunlow looking really miserable in the background as they're whispering to each other. Yeah, it's it's this is another example of a character who doesn't have a whole lot of screen time and and so much of of the personality uh, given to him is kind of brought through just the performance itself. And yeah, he feels like a guy who is it's just to, I'm here to get this mission done. I'm going to be as cooperative as I can to get that done, but like I'm in charge of things and Everything else is just kind of superfluous. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter at all to him. And in the scenes where like the scenes where he, he it's between he and um oh I forget the actor's name now. Um Dale Dye. Dale Dye, yes. Uh, where he's you know, he's just almost like speaking down to him. Uh and he has that great line, like I I forget the line itself, but where he says, you know, we we find out what he 
what are his, we find out his weakness and we squeeze, we squeeze. just the way <laughs> he accentuates yeah d- different words it's it's like the the night the really good kind of screen chewing then of course we have the series regular luther stickle played by ving rames and ving rames he's always playing ving rames but he's very good at playing ving rames and i like him yeah, I, I I really love Luther. I can't tell how much of my love for him here is just because of my love for him over the series, but but I still really like him a lot. And you can tell that that you can tell like they they knew the capacity that they were going to be using him in and like what role he was supposed to play in the series going forward by the dynamic they kind of establish uh, at the end of the film. And I, I love the line, you know, where he says, I'm going to, mu- I'm going to miss being disreputable. And Ethan just says, if it makes you feel better, I'll, I'll always think of you that way. And then going to that, that line in uh, Mission Impossible 3 is like, you know, I don't respect you nearly enough to have that conversation. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. And so that the vibe, like they set the tone for, for his character in this film and, and him kind of like being gleeful over his credentials in the train scene where he's like, uh, that was, it was never proven that I was involved in that <laughs> beautiful piece of work. They, they, they also give it touches of how conscientious he is where he's like, I, I can't let this knockless get in the open. You know, even though he's disavowed, he still isn't going to betray, you know, several hundred agents to the enemy. Yeah. And so, and I, I think the goodness in him is is accentuated by being juxtaposed with uh, Jean Reno's character, Creve, uh, uh, Krieger. Krieger, I think. He's just Jean Reno. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you kind of see, like, especially in the scene where, where he's like doing his little magic trick and finding, like you know, pulling the knock list out of, uh, <laughs> out of the coats and stuff, which is itself just a really great scene for Tom Cruise. And then a fantastic finish where you realize it was all a trick anyway. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I like uh, Luther a lot. And I think a lot of what makes me love him over the series is really established really well here. Then uh, moving into an, another, yeah, the most famous scene from this film, and rightly so, you have the Langley heist. And again, this is just another masterful piece of storytelling. And you, uh, you know, we have all the pieces moving together as they're, as they're kind of infiltrating. And he, it does the classic thing that I don't know if I don't know if Mission Impossible series started yet, but all the Mission Impossible films do that, where they'll all get together and they'll start narrating what they're going to do, and then as they're narrating, they'll actually show start playing into the heist. And so we have this, you know, fun narrations happening while we're actually kind of, um, where we have all the exposition happening while that those things are actually happening in the story. And this is all the pieces moving around. But then the real kind of master stroke is I think it's like nine and a half or ten and a half minutes of like pure silence. At the moment, Hunt is lowered through the air vent into the, the computer room. All the music goes out and it's just ambient noise. And that sequence lasts for I I think I timed it, it was about like it was like nine, ten minutes. And it's just the like the purest suspense sequence I have ever seen. And it's amazing just the way all the little things that have to happen you know, with Cruz with his <laughs> incredible physicality as he's hanging from the rope and, oh, the rat's coming and just, you know, the temperature and the sound up, the sound monitor, just all these little pieces that are just slowly, very slowly and quietly rolled out. Oh, it's, it's so good. Yeah, this is easily my favorite sequence of the film. And, and I think I said it over Messenger before. This is one of my favorite sequences of the entire series. One, I am just a sucker of the 
let's talk about what we're going to do as we show us doing it. It's just, I love montages like that, or just, I guess whatever you would call that, that, uh, that trope. Uh, and so I usually end up having a lot of fun, but it's just, it's presented in a really smart way. And the fact, like, as a director and a writer, it almost seems like they're making their jobs harder by consistently introducing one more obstacle. Like you said, there's there's the pressure-sensitive floors, there's the temperature, there's the, the lasers, there, all of these different things, plus the guy who's going to constantly be trying to come back in. There's so many different things that have to be accounted for, and it's spelled out so well and so clearly from the beginning of the sequence that we don't need, you know... Luther saying, oh, if you step on that floor, like we don't need the explanation during the scene. And because we don't need that, you get just that pure silence with the only break being the, you know, he's, he's coming back because, you know, obviously you have to have the, the character telling that to, to Ethan, but it just, it goes on for so long. And I, I have a, an air vent here that it's sometimes a little bit loud as it comes on. And so it, it, it went off about two minutes into the scene. And that's when I realized just how like quiet the room was where I wasn't even making a noise. And I I think what, what really sells the scene better than anything else is the way Tom, like you you mentioned Tom Cruise's physicality he brought to it. Every move he makes in this sequence is perfect from the way he's kind of holding himself up with his feet. And as soon as, you know, he's left the room and he's ready to beginning that, that little twirl he does as he lets go and he goes flat is incredible. And him, just reaching out his toes to hit the desk and you see the bottom of his shoes and what he's wearing just like his entire suit is designed to minimize silence and and the part I, I watched this with my sister we were both watching the movies leading up to fallout and i was just kind of doing the like look sideways real quick to to gauge her reaction during it but whenever he slips because of the rat and he barely catches on instead of doing that like oh man that was close we just exist in that moment for like 30 seconds of him flailing his arms around trying to keep balance. And I don't know if I've ever, like, especially first viewing, I don't know if I've ever just felt myself that on edge. And the look of panic and terror in Ethan's face and then the, the sweat going down the glasses. And, and you know, we set that up because of the putting the glass on the, the table. And we, we've seen that even a, just a drop of liquid on the floor uh, triggers it. So by the time the scene ends, my sister just goes, oh, I felt like I couldn't breathe for 10 minutes. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the setup and payoffs with the, with the drop from the soda, there, there are so many of those in the film. They're so perfectly done. Uh, my favorites are the, the way the gum and the glasses are both set up in the first, you know, like in, in the first big sequence. And then they're both paid off in that sequence where, you know, he watches Phelps get shot through the glasses. And then obviously he uses the gum to escape. But then they come back and both are like integral parts of the climax where he uses the, the glasses to reveal Phelps to uh, Kittredge and then uses the gun to blow up the helicopter. It's like, it's just a perfect use of setups and payoffs where you don't even know you're being set up for something. But by the time it finally comes around, it just feels like such a natural and natural and uh, inevitable part of that world. It, it just makes the, the story so satisfying. There's so many little things like that. And that's just another thing that uh, De Palma does such a wonderful job is just creating those sequences, very, very much like Spielberg does as well. And that really, I think it kind of helps this movie overcome the fact that there is so little real emotion underneath it, is that it is just such a satisfying experience to watch. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think we should probably get into some issues I do have with the film. Uh, 
Like, I know that the majority of whatever love triangle was there was cut out, but the parts that are there are still fairly uncomfortable for me. Like, does he go and sleep with Claire immediately after finding out her husband's still alive? Is, is, is that not what's happening? I can't. I can't tell. Part of me. I think part of me thinks so. Just because of how clearly he is taken with her. You know, like when we're seeing the him, his realization that's happening in his head. And he's like, no, no, he, he could have done that himself. He clearly cares for her. And, and then that's confirmed whenever uh, uh, <laughs> in a really gross line at the end from Phelps where he's like, uh, she wasn't convinced you could. Yeah, goods. she wasn't convinced that you would fall for her. But I was convinced having tasted the goods myself. It's just, it makes my skin crawl hearing it. Um, but yeah, and because of that, I think one of my biggest issues, maybe maybe even my biggest issue, like I said, most of them revolves around her character. Uh, there's just, she kind of exists just as, as a tool Phelps is using to manipulate Ethan with. And, and then we kill her off without a second's hesitation for reasons that I'm still unclear on. I guess Phelps was just jealous of the fact that she was... Like, but is she or is she not actually into Ethan? Like, he he obviously sent her in there to seduce Ethan, but then he's mad that she's pleading for his life, but she's also perfectly willing to hand him over to Kittredge to be executed or put in in a, you know, solitary confinement for life. So, and also, does Ethan actually believe Claire is innocent? Because you have that that really cool sequence where... Uh, Phelps is telling his story and then Ethan is kind of imagining what really happened and then he sees Claire blow up the uh, car and it's like no 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 he could have died by himself and then we go and show uh, Phelps do it so obviously he cares about Claire and he's trying to convince himself that Claire is innocent and yet he sets up the trap for Claire so he obviously doesn't trust her like it's it's I, I, see, I think that works enough because you know he says he knew about he knew about him he did know about her the fact that he first suspected her showed there was some sort of suspicion there's just kind of a I guess a test just to, to confirm yes or no. Okay. Uh, it just feels like the, the, the those bits kind of come out of nowhere, because, obviously because the love, whatever, most of the material regarding the love triangle was cut out. So they just, they just, see, and I'm glad it was cut out because I would have just hated Ethan as a character. If, you know, if the entire film, he was going after a married woman, but, even the parts that are there, I think they're, they're still kind of annoying. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's not as egregious as what was done in Army of Darkness, but I, I think there is some crossover in my complaints of just, you know, it's it's really annoying to me to have her included in such a shallow way. And, and it's not like the movie ever just goes out of its way to objectify or anything gross like that. It, but it's still just when you when you consider her character alone, that's she's just consistently being manipulated and she is there just to kind of be that temptation for the characters. And, and then, yeah, just to get shot off in an incredibly anticlimactic way for way, for reasons that we really can only speculate because I, I don't think that the answer is, is made clear itself where it's just like, well, I guess it could have been because of this. Yeah. Essentially you, her character seems to be trying to go for that kind of classic fifties femme fatale, but she's just so doe-white and innocent for the rest of the movie, and that never actually leads. Like at the end, when it's actually revealed who she is and what she is, she's still playing that very kind of sad, doe-white, innocent girl. And you never really—it just—it just—it just feels like she's been used the whole time. I think overall, I think 
the reason people get so confused about this movie, I think, is there's a couple, even though I think the story is very simple, you know, you Phelps betrayed them, Kittred th- and, and Framed Hunt, and then they go get the thing for Max, and then they all come together on the train. Like, it, there's actually very little movement in the plot. But I think what what's, what really throws people off is that scene in the restaurant with Phelps and Hunt, where Phelps is telling his side of the story, and Hunt is imagining what really happened. But then we just kind of act like that nothing happened, nothing happened there, and we go back to business as usual. And and then what's really weird is the scene on the train where it's shot through the window with the screen pulled down. We just see his hands as Phelps is putting together the, the gun, and we never see his face. Like we never know who's actually doing it. It's it's as if the film is trying to maintain the mystery of of Phelps being the villain, except they already gave that away. It's just a really odd touch. So it just kind of. If you're not paying close attention, and also for the first view, it just makes the whole thing feel really confusing when it didn't need to be. Like they, they make the reveal way too too early, and so you think, wait, that can't be what it actually is, and then it actually comes, and you're like, oh, that was that's all there was. So for a, like a paranoia thriller, they reveal their cards so so early that you think they're gonna go somewhere else, and so and it just it just feels really confusing. All, they're giving you these weird signals, and also there's a couple things where you don't exactly know. You're not really in Hunt's head from the moment where he he sees what actually what Phelps actually did up until finally when he where he pulls the mask off. There's like a 10, 10, 20 minutes going into the climax where you're really not sure what he knows or what he's going to do. And you just you feel it's kind of kind of disconnected, just kind of watching what's happening. Not like you're actually with the team setting this heist up. Yeah. So the source of my confusion was definitely that restaurant scene the first time. And. I'm still kind of mixed on on that because in a way I really applaud a lot of about that scene. It's very very clever. Yeah, it's it, the the way it's portrayed, and I think one of the reasons why I'm I'm kind of glad it was done the way it, it was is because I don't remember seeing anything like this in in any other film where where the twist is given away, where where the protagonist calls it that early on. Um, and allows us in on it. And the way they allow us in on it is really, really cool. With the way, like, he'll he'll see Phelps doing it. And then it's like, and then Kittredge did this. Um, so, once, like, on a second watch and you understand what's happening, it's done in a really, really creative way. I just wish there was more of a payoff. Like you said, we're not, we, we, we are very much in his head during that scene. And then we go into the climax not really knowing where he's at anymore. And so... Th- to me, you, you've got to maintain that to where we feel like we're with him. And if not, there has to be that big reveal. Like, if you're going to pull that twist, the payoff would be, like, waiting for, you know, you know Phelps has no idea that he knows, and there's just going to be something huge that's going to happen at the end. It's going to be awesome, and we're all going to cheer because we knew that Ethan was in on it. But it feels like that like, there's, like, two moments that I guess serve as that, but neither feel like these big... I mean, certainly not because of how early they gave the twist away. One being, you know, it's him wearing the mask. But like any upper hand he had there, it just feels like instantly gone because now all of a sudden, again, he's the guy with his hands up and a gun pointed at him. Um, so that that reveal of... If it was, <laughs> like what, what, what was he trying to do there? Exactly. I mean, I guess the, the point, he, what he was achieving was confirming his, you know, confirming or denying his suspicion about... Um, Claire, which she accomplishes. <laughs> you also, <laughs> I just had a, a funny thought watching it this time. You know, there was there must have been some sort of 
of moment that he was in there before Claire got there. So so the real Phelps is just kind of hiding in the dark at some corner, watching Ethan, who's just kind of sitting by himself on this bench, and they're just both sitting in silence <laughs> waiting for something to happen. Uh, but yeah, the upper hand he has there goes away. And then there's the reveal, like, oh, I've, I've got you on camera and I've got the confession, which is like the big, ah, I gotcha moment. But even still... I do like that moment a yeah, lot. Yeah, it's, it's super cool. It's just, I think it would have been more effective if it didn't have the weight placed on its shoulders of like, okay, this is going to be the big reveal. Because even still, I mean, it gives him the upper hand in that like his plan's falling apart. People know who he is. But then, you know, Phelps still has the gun and then he beats him in hand to hand somehow. And again, just with Claire's death, you've got a gun. You've got a woman who's like technically still, yes, she's pleading for his life, but you've got to assume she's still most likely on on your side. And you've got the guy who's actually trying to stop you and bring you in. And you're pointing the gun at him. And instead of shooting him, you turn to shoot your wife for some reason. And then you punch the guy who's actually posing the real threat. It just... Well, he... The, the, gun, the gun went off when Ethan grabbed it. Uh, well, I thought... No, he had, he... he had two shots. Okay. He shot his wife and then went back to go to Ethan. And then Ethan grabbed it and the gun went off. Okay. But even... Like, the, the, I, like shooting him... Or shooting her first just feels so weird. And, uh, I don't know. Especially considering the reasons are so unclear. Yet... The, this this whole scene that may be one of my least sadly enough because it's like the big reveal and part of the big climax it's one of my least favorite scenes because there really is no emotion and because of not having that love triangle it, it means very little for the characters we know ethan was like kind of falling for her or whatever and she seems to have done the same because she's bleeding for him but but it's it, none of it really works but the whole time he suspected her as well so that so like what like when he goes into her room and she kind of invites him in like is he just playing her i don't know the whole thing's just weird and also i i don't understand how having a bible proves that phelps is still alive like i guess like like what what does that mean like they know that phelps was at the drake motel so he took the bible there and he brought it to the safe room why does that how does that prove he's still alive and what why and why does phelps steal bibles if if, if max says you know job was not given to quoting scripture <laughs> exactly um you know talking about like the the things that kind of make the film appear more convoluted than it has to be i think also just a lot of the code names and and what exactly <laughs> like job has this but he's you know what is job 314 and the whole scene of him like the whole email scene and him typing in like max.com and all this like he goes to some completely random bible form and then sends an email to where yeah there's that scene because the thing like even the restaurant scene i've done a 180 on where i re- like it was confusing at first but now i rewatch it and really appreciate how interesting of a choice it was and and it being just a super creative way to portray it but even on rewatches the the scenes of him interacting as job and looking for max and you know i mean i i know in a practical sense like why he's doing what he's doing why he needs the actual knock list what max is after all of this stuff but the way it's portrayed is just so unnecessarily or unnecessarily confusing and yeah, like the when he types in Job three fourteen, he sees the verse and he's like, "I got you." It's like, wait, what? What is that really? T- I, yeah, just <laughs> that whole scene of him on the computer is, is not really telling of what's actually happened. 
Yeah, De Palma obviously had never used a computer in his life before. Now I understand like what he was doing step by step as he's going and talking to Max, but they've never really established what Job 314 was and what exactly Max was previously. So as he's typing it all into the computer, like, wait, who's he talking to? That was, yeah, that was a big issue I had. Uh, like I said, especially the first time, but even still, you know, just how he got the address, how he came into contact with them, what the significance of 314 and like that, that Bible verse meant because, because yeah, like you said, it being a Bible verse and that, that leading him on there only to discover like, oh, the giveaway was he was never really like just a, a lot of stuff that I, I'm sure is supposed to be like interesting, like wet, like developments. Um, and it's like, oh, okay. That's a cool touch. But in reality, it's like, wait, what? Why? Mm-hmm. And, and I think overall, the, the way the film is paced and structured, or more, not, not pacing, because it never feels boring, but like the structure is a little odd. Like where you, the, the going from first act to second act to third act feels like very abrupt. And just like, we are here, now we're here. For example, they decided we got to we got to break into Langley, and they're, I'm assuming, in fr- somewhere in Central Europe. And then, bang, they're in Langley. They do the heist, and then bang, they're in an apartment in England, I guess. Like it, it, it does. It doesn't feel like oh, we're you know the, the where the plot is moving from here to here to here. It feels like we're here. This happens now. We're here, and this is going to happen. You know, it, it doesn't. It 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 feels literally like they wrote a screenplay around a certain locations and and stunts, and didn't really do the work to get them from one place to the other. It's not a huge complaint because I think the film is paced fairly well, but it it, it does make the film just it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it has that kind of strong narrative. Yeah, and it's kind of ironic, you know, given that we were praising De Palma for the way he's able to lay out geography and, and where everything is and where we're going and what we're doing so well on a micro, like, scene-by-scene level. But on a macro level, yeah, it's, it's like, okay, like you said, we were here and, and now we're over here and, and, and now we're over here. And they're, they're, it's just hard cuts. They're, there's a lack of, like, these kind of smooth transitional scenes. Yeah, travel montages are fun. Just do it. Exactly. <laughs> Dun, 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 you know, have the plane flying over with the red yeah, line. Yeah, that's all you need, and I wouldn't even complain. Just like a few more words about the climax. We kind of talked about it at the beginning, but I, I just, I do love that train sequence a lot. Um, you really do feel the force of the wind, and it, it is, it is really a nail biter. And uh, I, I do, I do love the part where he jumps in the helicopter. You know, red light, green light. You know, he has to have his his nineties one liner and. I, I do love the shot where he jumps in the explosion because I think it's a really, the way the shot is set up is really cool. And it, it again, it, it's blue screen, but it really doesn't look like it. The way he kind of flies for his arms flailing. Like there's, there's, there's no dignity or not, I don't know if dignity is right, but like there's no pretension in the way it, it, it doesn't look like there's any pretension in the way that Cruz is acting. You know, he's, he's not afraid to make himself look like really ridiculous and dorky and miserable as he's doing these stunts. I think that's one of the reasons that really sells it. It, it, He sells all the exertion and panic and last minute decisions that his character is having to make. It's just the way he flies forward with his arms flailing. He just kind of bounces on the train. I I just love that shot. Yeah. His physicality helps the movie immensely. Like, like you said, he's not afraid to just kind of like make whatever face or emotion or action that you just would, regardless of whether or not it makes you look like an action star. Like even him climbing in the vents, he's just, he's got his like teeth sticking. He just looks like he's, it's taking every ounce of effort out of him just to pull himself up. My biceps were getting sore watching. Yeah, good grief. As for the scene, like I I don't think it's terrible. 
Um, I'm not particularly fond of it. And I think uh, I really like everything that happens on top of the train. I think it starts to lose me when the helicopter goes into the tunnel. <laughs> Although that, that is a funny setup, kind of small setup payoff for previously when I was like, you know, yeah. I could fly a helicopter in and land you right inside Fort Knox. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's not terrible um, because of things like that. It's just for me... You know, watching it, especially rewatching after I, I've learned to really, really enjoy it, one of the things that sets it apart um, from the series, and even just you know from the genre itself, is how believable it presents itself. Even when it's we're doing these kind of unbelievable things, most of the time it feels really realistic and and believable. Like every, despite the absurd, like nature of the the Langley invasion it feels as like okay within the context of this film and the way you're presenting it i i buy it and and here like seeing the helicopter almost remain perfectly level not only going at the speed it's going but attached to a train and confined to this small space <laughs> it's just one too many things like you know in in the Langley scene constantly adding these elements to overcome works because the way they're overcome is incredible but here, the way they're overcome is just like by flying absolutely perfectly, and and yeah, it just it looks off and and the the for a ninety for a movie made in ninety six, the explosion that forces him to the train has aged surprisingly well. But again, it's it's not even so much the portrayal; it's just this was just a straight spy thriller before, and and even the stuff on top of the train doesn't feel like it's betraying it because of like you said, you know, it feels like it's kind of Hitchcockian like edge of your seat hanging on you know just by the skin of your teeth so that whenever things like going into the train and the explosion and stuff it's it just feels slightly off with the rest of the film but it doesn't break it at all for me yeah i, I get that i just i have no problems with this really all right uh, did you get a chance to listen to the soundtrack um so i actually haven't been able to listen to it in full and <laughs> most of my like listening to the soundtrack is just kind of listening to the main theme on repeat because it's awesome <laughs> that's um, understandable um, so obviously for me, the, the, the main title, Mission Impossible theme, is just fantastic. Uh, the, the basic music is uh, taken from the 60s show, but Elfman really elevated it. You know, he brought in a, the full orchestration and just added that really infectious sense of energy and fun and adventure. Where like Now the theme has become synonymous with heists. Like in the, uh, There's so many movies where, you know, mostly co- you know, comedies, where when anyone's breaking into the somewhere they're humming the mission impossible theme to themselves like you know that 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 sound has become synonymous with with a with heist and that kind of thriller so really great work there um i i the track big trouble i like a lot it's the one that plays as everything is going wrong in Prague, and it's this you know very sweeping tragic music and then there's betrayal which is like this really grand almost like operatic choir that's this is just like really sad and mournful but very very swelling um, like it's almost like you you brought the choir if you brought the choir up a few a few octaves it would have been like the halo theme hmm. uh I, I really enjoy it a lot overall most of the score is kind of l- like light percussion just kind of quiet background music that's just kind of you know playing up the tension and kind of thriller aspects, but there's not a lot in the soundtrack that's really kind of engaging music to listen to outside of the movie. And then finally, what would you rate this film out of five stars? Uh, I go four out of five. Um, I think it's really solid. Uh, I think the initial viewing was a three, but once things kind of came together for me, 
um, earlier this year when I rewatched it, I, I bumped it up that full star and, and it's really enjoyable. And I, I think it's going to rank fairly high in like over the course of the entire series, just because of its uniqueness and it's, you know, it overcomes its lack of emotion just in, in how competent it presents these sequences. Um, and, and how the, uh, the tone and atmosphere just feels so well established and thick throughout, uh, really, really solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm actually at four stars as well. It's like, despite having a lot of issues, it's still just such a solid genre exercise. Like there's so many points where it is just, like like some like so, there are a lot of scenes that are just absolutely masterful that really kind of take this genre to its height. Um, so yeah, it, normally I think a film with this many issues would have been three point five, but I think there's so many great scenes that it pushes up to a, a solid four. So upon its initial release, it grossed 180 million domestically and 276 million worldwide for her, uh, for a 457 million. Uh, worldwide total on a budget of 80 million and adjusted for inflation it's uh, still actually the most profitable film in the series domestically which is interesting that's one interesting thing about this series is how it's never really become like a big blockbuster it's always been like that mid-range you know you know 300 to 5 to 600 million area yeah and it really depresses me because we've got fast and furious out there making like <laughs> certain amounts and and I, ha- I, ha- I have an element of goodwill towards fast and furious but yes this, this it, for how synonymous with like great action the series has become it's it's never gotten and you know for how big of a a, a star tom cruise sensibly is it's never really become like one of the the blockbuster series it's a shame because I I think it kind of has earned that title of you know best consistently best action series. Yes. Um, as far as the critical reception, uh, it's I guess it, it leaned kind of positive, but it doesn't. From what I've read, like reading back to the old reviews, they don't seem all that enthusiastic. You know, they they praise the stunts and Tom Cruise and just kind of the action vibe, but there's a lot of criticism to, like towards the uh, you know at the script, you know, how it's confusing and there's no emotion, which <laughs> I agree with both of those, but it, it does, it does feel kind of weird just how, how little regard it was given to, to this film at its original release. However, it does seem that people have ever since been, they've been really coming around to this movie where I know a lot of rankings, people where people rank this at still at the top of the series, just, you know, despite loving, you know, despite where, where all the films minus maybe number two are very popular. People have kind of come around and, really uh, come to appreciate uh, what this movie was. And, you know, the, uh, the Langley sequence is one of those celebrated uh, highest sequences. And I feel like, you know, despite rather mixed, um, a rather mixed initial reception, this film has become quite respected over the years. Yeah. I think a lot of that can be felt uh, that sequence, the Langley sequence is just so popular and, you know, we've seen it spoofed and parodied so many, like, I don't know how many, how many parodies have featured the guy being dropped in by a wire and almost hitting the floor and, and things like that. And, and it, you know, it being the original of this series that despite maybe not making just insane amounts of money, everybody knows when one's coming out and like, this, like it's surprisingly popular for a movie that doesn't make just an enormous amount of movie. And it, you know, it can be traced back here. And, and yeah, I, I know several people who still consider it their favorite, uh, just because it it might be the most pure in in this kind of I guess spy secret agent kind of genre. 
yeah, it's it's really been able to maintain its its own identity, and you know, in, in a series that is famous for each film having its own identity, I think this film is possible. I don't know, the, the two always exists, but <laughs> yeah, I feel it's like this one is probably the most unique success, like fully successful film in the series. Whereas three onwards, they they kind of found their identity. This film kind of still feels of its own in in a good way. And yeah, just looking forward, I, the way people think about it now, I think this film will continue to be one of the celebrated, uh, one of the more celebrated installments in a very celebrated franchise. So that's that's not nothing. So uh, that was Mission Impossible. Again, I'd like to ask you if you enjoyed the show to please go and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there as Franchise Pod. We are also on Instagram as Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, and also on Facebook at the group Star Wars Fans Who Actually Like Star Wars. You and I, along with some friends, are, are both admins over there. Um, so as far as an online presence, that'd be the best place to look. And I'm also on Letterboxd. I'm there as Gabriel Green. And I'm on Twitter as Gabe A. Green. And also on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Uh, so next week, we'll be taking a trip to Australia via the cinema of Hong Kong in uh, John Woo's much derided and also somewhat beloved Mission Impossible 2. Uh, love it or hate it, this is, this is going to be a fun talk. <laughs> yeah, my enjoyment of this film is completely dependent on whether I'm watching it with a group or not. <laughs> There is much ironic pleasure to be had. Oh, definitely. Um, so yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a fun conversation at least. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. You want to shake hands with the devil? That's fine with me. I just want to make sure you do it in hell. Mm-hmm.